welcome to Conversations About Life. All right, well, thank you, Alex, for being on the podcast. Looking forward to talking with you. And I just met you recently, so this will be really neat, just getting to know who you are better. And I just heard, well, you have a background in theology at Southern uh, Seminary, and then we were just talking. Right now you're in tech um, doing computer coding. And as far as an introduction, just how else would you describe who you are? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's a, a pretty good um, a pretty good starter. So um, me and my wife uh, both went through that journey of Southern together. Um, we actually met whenever we were in fourth grade. Um, so kind of that long history of, of wow. growing up together, uh, which is nice. I, I got her before she realized that there were better people out in the world, um, which was my goal right off the bat. Like, I need to get somebody who doesn't know that there are better men. Um, anyway, uh, so she and I, uh, she and I started dating right after high school. Um, and, um, we got married midway through college. Uh, at that time I was thinking of, um, doing something in like preaching or being a pastor in some way. Um, and then it was the, I worked with, uh, Jeremy Jessen, who was over at Heartland Baptist Church, um, which is kind of right down the road from from Rockport, the church that I'm at now. Um, and I was there for, for many, many years and uh, working with the pastor there, and he was kind of mentoring me along. Uh, I went to go preach one Sunday. He had certain Sundays that I would, I would preach just to get used to being in a pulpit. Uh, and midway through preaching, I had, uh, had a moment where I was looking out at the audience and, and going through my material. And I realized, like, oh none of them care what I'm talking about. <laughs> like there's not a single person in this room that cares, uh, which is fine. Every pastor, everybody's preaching will have that moment. Um, but then I had the introspective moment of like, Oh, but I don't really care that they don't care. And I was like, I feel like that's a problem. Uh, and whenever I told that to other people, they were like, yeah, that's, that's a problem. Uh, that's not a good sign for a pastor, right? Uh, pastors should care that, that people care about what he's talking about. Um, and so whenever we were like, well, we're still going to seminary because we're still signed up um, and I'm doing well in, in academia. And so I was like, let's just go and then we'll figure it out kind of in seminary. So this was before you went into seminary? Like or? a few months before. Yeah. Okay. Kind of that crisis of like, Oh, should I be, should I be a pastor? Right. Um, so I went into seminary basically with the concept in the back of my mind that it's probably not going to lead toward, um, becoming a pastor. Um, but it was also like, okay, well I'll, I'll make sure like I'll, I'll do kind of character checks and, and see if, uh, see if what the necessary skills to be a pastor actually line up with what I, I have and develop. Um, so I, I went through and I got done with my, my master's degree. I did a advanced master's of divinity. Um, and I got to the end of it and I realized like, um, I had to do a, um, a big thesis at the end. Um, and so for my thesis, it was right at the time that Caitlyn Jenner was making her transition, um, very publicly. And I was like, okay, that's how, after having one or two thesis ideas rejected, cause they were either too convoluted or not very clear. 
um, all of a sudden, one of my, I was like, oh, hey, let's, let's talk about this very current issue. Um, and I was like, let's, let's focus on how Christian academia should engage with, uh, with the transgender community uh, and to what level we can engage there. And so I ended up, all right, let, let's dive into that. I, I, I wrote twice as much as what I was supposed to. Uh, luckily, my, uh, my advisor just kept letting me write. Um, and at the end, it was one of those conversations of, this is really good. You should, you should follow in philosophy. You should do something in philosophy proper. I'd done a bunch of apologetics and stuff before, uh, but it was like, you should actually get true training in this. Um, and so uh, that's what I did. I, I followed up with a, another master's degree in philosophy. Um, and then with that, I, I did exactly what everybody does with a master's degree in philosophy. Uh, I worked at Starbucks for three years. Um, and so uh, after, you know, not really moving in, I've tried to do kind of some... Um, uh, professor gigs that didn't really pan out where I was just too many, too many Southern students in the local community colleges and stuff. So it was, it was hard to get placed. Um, my brother who, uh, is already a software developer came alongside me and it was like, listen, you, you learned Greek, you learned Hebrew, you learned Latin, you learned these other languages, uh, go learn JavaScript and go get a job, <laughs> go get paid. And so uh, that was what I did, basically seven months. And me and my wife worked hard where um, we had a, a new baby girl and she, she took on the brunt of kind of caring for her and working um, so that I could work 40 hours a week and then code for 25, 30, 40 hours a week. And after seven, eight months, we were ready to kind of get placed in St. Louis and we moved back closer to family, which was really nice. Um, got placed into a job just before COVID hit, which is a huge blessing. Uh, life would have been a lot worse going through COVID if I wasn't in the job that I am now. Um, and then uh, it's been really lifting because it, it allows me to use quasi-philosophy in my, in my daily job, basically a lot of logic and, and things like that. So um, it, it's basically as, as close as you can get to be being paid for to be a philosopher in the modern realm. So, so like um, logic, are you talking about like Boolean logic that that's, you know, related to philosophy? Yeah, um, yeah, okay. absolutely. So uh, it's actually an interesting history. Whenever, um, whenever programmers were, were first developing back in the 70s, uh, coding languages were first being written, um, they wanted a, a way to clearly express logic. Um, so they went to their dads, um, who were all... Um, like uh, computer guys, guys who were actually building and soldering computers together. Um, well, the people who taught them were all electrical engineers. Um, and electrical engineers needed a clear, like, on and off, right? It either has power or it doesn't. Um, and for them, they were like, okay, well, what do we, how do we express that clearly? And they went to analytical logic. And so uh, kind of Bertram Russell, the father of analytical, modern analytical logic, there's a clear line between Bertram Russell and what I do in JavaScript. Uh, hmm. And so it's like, okay, well, if it was good enough for Bertram Russell, then I will certainly jump in myself. Um, but yeah, a weird, a weird way that that ends up going. So um, it's really nice if you enjoy, yeah, really low level logic, really plays a big game. Once you get into more fuzzy logic and machine learning, gets a little bit crazier. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely logic is a huge part of it. Okay. 
huh, that's interesting. Um, I, I guess I never thought about like, I, I, I can relate to logic being related to computer coding, puzzle, uh, figuring out puzzles and stuff like that. But I didn't think of logic being related so much to philosophy, I guess. But Yeah. So. Yeah, it depends on uh, what um, kind of field of philosophy you're in, right? Um, in Christianity, because uh, that's that's where I focus on is is Christianity and, and philosophy, how those two uh, intersect. <clears throat> there are basically two fields that are predominant in Christian thought. Um, you either have uh, analytical logic, uh, which uh, borrows heavily from Bertram Russell, um, who was not a Christian. Um, in fact, one of his most... Uh, famous writings is why I'm not a Christian, uh, which is really, really wonderful, small document, um, worth a read. Um, but, uh, that kind of analytical logic became really big, uh, especially in Alvin Plantinga, um, who's a modern, uh, mm-hmm. I think he's still alive. Uh, I haven't checked in the past year, but I'm pretty sure he's still alive. He's getting up there. Um, and the way that like presuppositions and, uh, basically crafting an analytical argument for um, different aspects of, of God and the nature of God and things like that. Um, the other is kind of continental philosophy, which is a lot more um, uh, postmodern in its orientation, things like that. Um, I was trained in both fields, which is nice. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and so I, I usually focus on analytical logic, though, because that's where my uh, better professors were, uh, Dr. Blunt pushed analytical philosophy really hard. So uh, I'm happy to, to be in that field, especially because that's what actually impacts coding too. So, And that has, um, I'm assuming, has more of a basis in um, like objective truth compared to like uh, the other field of um, philosophy. Is that right? Um, certainly it's more, um, it's more focused on like logic and what we can... Uh, Objective truth is always a hard part. Uh, what we can uh, derive from truth principles in and of themselves. Um, so a great example would be like, um, what do we know about uh, omnipotence, right? Um, the idea that God is all-powerful. Um, is there any limitations to that? Well, Scripture is clear that there definitely are certain limitations to what it means to be all-powerful. Um Scripture says uh, explicitly, I, the Lord, cannot lie. Um, and so that is certainly an aspect, an action that cannot be done and either maintain omnipotence or cannot be done by the power of omnipotence. Um, but there are certain logical things that could not be done, right? Um, God cannot make a married bachelor because it's opposed to what a bachelor is. Uh, a square with four sides, something like that. Uh, if God were to make a square with four sides, it would be not a square, or sorry, a triangle with four sides. It would be not a triangle. Um, there's certain things like that, and it's it's in the the truth propositions themselves um, that's being evaluated and investigated. Um, continental philosophy is more in the sense of once you get the subjective actor into play, um, how can you um, how can you derive any truth value that's consistent is a is a big thing. Um, and then how do we, how do we have access to knowledge? So, um, uh, and you know, there, I'm sure that there's people who could listen to this and, and critique my, uh, understanding of continental philosophy. Um, 
but to the best of my knowledge, something like uh, a postmodern approach to a question like, um, why did Christ die? <clears throat> so why did Christ die on the cross uh, is a great uh, question to ask a continental philosopher because there are a thousand reasons, or there are a thousand um, correct answers to that question. Um, why did he die on the cross? Well, he died as a substitutionary penal, uh, penal atonement. Like, okay, but why did he die on the cross? Well, he died because Romans hung him on a tree. Like, both of those are true. And as long as you're kind of approaching them in that philosophical framework, both of them are completely satisfactory. But neither give you a full understanding of what happened. Um, and so postmodernism really becomes kind of a multidisciplinary approach to say, I'm going to try to envelop as many of these different disciplines as you can to look at that. Like what was the socioeconomic conditions that led to Christ's death? Uh, what were the spiritual, what were the religious, um, you know, to think about it as what were the Sadducees and Phyllis, uh, you know, uh, uh, different religious groups doing during that time. Um, all of which led to the Christ of death, uh, sorry, uh, Christ's death. Um, and to just evaluate kind of one without looking at the others, you're going to have an incomplete detail. Now, postmodernism goes one step further to say you can't, uh, not only can you not have a full picture because you can't have all of those, you can never really have all of those. And so there's always going to be a sense of like, there's always more, you never really have a true objective hold on what that reason was that Christ died on the cross um, because there's always going to be another perspective and you can't really um, invalidate one because of the other. Um, it's a very interesting field. Um, I think that there's more promise to it than what we, we give it. I think that a lot of Christians are very um, opposed to postmodernism right off the bat um, for various reasons. And I think most of them are, uh, so most of them are silly. Some of them are really good reasons to be opposed. Uh, I'm still studying in that area, particularly trying to figure out exactly where I, I land on different issues. Um, yeah, definitely two, two very opposing fields of thought though. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's one thing to consider that us in our limited capacity can see all of the different answers to that question or anything and really have like a, all-encompassing knowledge of anything, but um, I think where it kind of rubs Christians wrong is if, um, you know, it sounds like it's not objective truth, like like there is no right answer or something like that, um, rather than none of us can just fully grasp it, you know, yeah. I don't know. Which is, uh, you know, that's one of the classic um, um one of the classic problems of uh, of postmodernism and its critique where it's, you know, does postmodernism say that objective reality doesn't exist or objective truth doesn't exist? Um, and postmodernism, I think, or most continental philosophers would say, no, objective reality exists or objective truth exists. Um, you just can't have it, uh, which is a lot like a parent saying like, oh, yeah, we have cake at home. It's just not for you. You can't have it. Like, well, then does it really matter that the cake exists at all if I can't have it? Um, and especially if I could never have it. Um, that's kind of where the argument comes in. And I think that that's where a lot of Christians go. Well, I, I think that uh, we can't have access to objective truth. Um, the difficulty is, of course, 
then we get into uh, epistemology or um, how do I know what I know, that study of knowledge itself. Um, and there, there's a whole convoluted, swirling vortex of, of arguments back and forth. Um, but yeah. But it, there's a difference between saying you can know true things than I can just know in like a more all-encompassing way. So you can, even though we could say, you know, we can't maybe do that in our limited capacity, but we could still, those answers you gave for why did Christ die, we can, you know, affirm, well, this is true and that is true and so, so forth like that, I think. So. Yeah. Yeah, we can definitely uh, kind of go through that evaluation process, <clears throat> which I think is true. Like, we can definitely check for things like logical consistency, right, um, or causality. Like, um, to say Christ died, one of the reasons why Christ died on the cross was because of the Romans. Like, that, I think, is a, a valid statement. Uh, to say Christ died on the cross because of the Americans that's a harder, <laughs> you know, very hard argument, uh, to show any logical consistency to. Um, but, um, yeah, it's definitely those two fields, continental and analytical philosophy are always kind of, um, always at ends, especially whenever you get into things like, um, larger scale issues like, um, economics or social policy and things where philosophy impacts that it becomes a little bit more striking the nice thing about Christian philosophy is that um, Christian philosophy, I think it's it's ten, uh, tended more toward analytical philosophy because of Plantinga, um, but I think a lot of Christian philosophy has uh, become a lot more valuable in the last 20 years uh, because the idea of what is the soul and, and what is man... Um, has become really pressing questions. Um, whenever we ask questions like, um, you know, uh, classic things of if uh, if augmented reality became so immersed that we could basically kind of strip ourselves of our body and put ourselves into a new body, you know, have we kind of come into Descartes or Cartesian's uh, philosophy of, of kind of switching bodies? Are you now somebody else because you're in somebody else's body? Um transgenderism I think has uh, huge consequences and, and what is the nature of the soul and the body and how do those split um, the nature of technology obviously and lots more um, I think that Christian philosophy has been dealing with that question for 2000 years uh, and it's become a really pertinent question in the past 10 years, 20 years in philosophy um, so I think right now Christian philosophy is, is pretty uh, pretty dynamic and growing. Uh, I think we, uh, 30 years ago, I think the philosophical society was made of less than uh, like 3% theists, something crazy low number. Uh, and I think it's up to like 10% theist now, mm -hmm. um, which is really impressive for its growth. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So both you and Kim knew each other early and mm -hmm. went into seminary together then? Yep. Well, that's kind of, so what, um, was Kim's desire for seminary? Oh, uh, sorry. Like uh, when we went into seminary, uh, both endeavoring in my uh, in my education. So oh, yeah. so it wasn't she wasn't yeah she wasn't in classes. Okay. Um, I see. Southern does offer uh, doesn't offer classes. I think at half price for for wives of okay. um, wives of students. Um, 
which is technically a quarter of the price because they already discount you significantly for being at Southern Baptist. Um, but it's still too expensive for most seminary students. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do have seminary wives, which was a, a thing that Kim did uh, did a course or two in. Um, Covenant theology, uh, Seminary uh, here in St. Louis, though. Um, I don't know if they still do, but whenever I was going through, uh, they offered free seminary students, or free um, seminary classes, uh, even full degrees um, to wives, um, which was very tempting at the time. Um, and looking hmm. back, I could, I don't know if I would have changed that decision. Uh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, to say we both went through seminary together, I think is, is accurate though, because um, one, there's no financial way to support yourself through seminary um, in the way that I went through. Uh, I worked you know, cheap, dirty, long, exhausting hours at Chick-fil-A and, and Starbucks and, and kind of... Uh, rough, low-income jobs, um, but then also, you know, emotionally and spiritually, it's it's very difficult to get through Southern uh, by yourself. I know other guys that that were able to do it, uh, but even those guys, like, they have roommates, they have friends that they're they're relying on. Um, nobody gets nobody gets through Southern by themselves. Um, everybody's degree should have an asterisk on it. Uh, next to their name to, to show all the other people that helped them along. Hmm. Um, and for me, it's, it's definitive. Like I could do the work and I could, I could produce papers. Uh, that would be terribly, uh, terrible grammatic, uh, grammatically, uh, if Kim wasn't the one to actually go through and proofread them for me. Um, but so much of seminary, I wouldn't have been able to get through without, without Kim helping me. So what was your desire? Like you mentioned a desire for preaching and all of this. Um, what did that come out of? Did you have like a conversion type of thing going on? and Or just what was behind all of this? Yeah. So uh, I grew up in the church. Um, and whenever I was uh, uh, whenever I was in high school, um, I became more and more comfortable just speaking in front of, in front of people, um, doing things like... Uh, marching band and doing performances. Not that I, I was skilled with an instrument. Um, I wasn't then, certainly not now. Um, but just being uncomfortable, being comfortable in front of a lot of people, um, doing things like an improv group and um, doing public speaking, things like that. And so I think that um, that cross section between uh, being a Christian and then being good at public speaking, a lot of people were like, oh, you should do this. Uh, and that's kind of what I led toward. I, for a while I considered, um, doing missionary work. Uh, and then I was like, no, I don't think I've got the skills necessary for missionary work. So then pretty well toward the middle of high school, I was like, okay, I think pastor is the right role. Um, and so I, I finished high school and I was like, okay, I'm going to pursue that. I got a, community college degree and then jumped into Missouri Baptist, um, to get a preaching degree. Um, and with that, I, I finished that. And then it was kind of right at the end of of that degree in Southern where I was like, I don't think preaching is a great option. Uh, I think I'm comfortable speaking in front of a group, but I don't think that that's really, uh, I, I don't think I've got the other kind of personal skills, um, and really care and heart for people that I think a pastor really needs. Um, and I'm happy I made that choice because I've seen 
lots of other people who didn't make that choice, uh, who definitely should have and are, um, doing a lot of damage to churches now. Um, because at the end of the day, I'm like, you're just good at giving speeches guy. <laughs> like, uh, you're not really a pastor. Um, I think Scott at our, our church, um, is a great example of somebody who is a pastor, right? He, he can, he can preach and he, he's very good at preaching, uh, wonderful preacher. Um, but every, every amount of like effort, focus, diligence, and skill that he has at the pulpit, you feel that same level of pastoral care whenever you just talk to him personally, um, which is what I lack that mm-hmm. kind of a, a empathy emotion. Um, <clears throat> so then I thought at Southern, well, maybe Christian academia is the way to go. Um, because professors can be stodgy and not have to have that, you know, personal connection. Um, which is probably if I was going to jump back into something, probably where I would land again and and teaching in some way. Um, but, uh, I I went to go do a PhD, um, but PhDs are expensive. Um, I applied one round and I didn't get anything. Um, and then just the cost of applying to a PhD and having to wait another year to reapply, um, while having a, you know, a baby girl, uh, she was one, one years old at the time. And, uh, knowing that like, uh, could, could be another no go and I'd be out another year and, uh, you know, it take a full year savings just to fill out the applications and then travel and, and meet professors and things like that. It's like, okay, I think that we're financially in a situation. We can't do this. We've got to do something different. So what do you think of your education now? Like you went through a lot of work and um, you've learned a lot of stuff, but you're not really using your education. You could have been at this point where you are right now, like a few years ago. So what do you think about it? Was it worth it or? Yeah. um, So uh, uh, there's a, there's a bit of a dichotomy I'll I'll give on that. Uh, One, I objectively believe it was worth it uh, because I'm still paying for student loans. And (laughs) as long as I'm paying down those loans, it, I need it to feel like it was objectively worth it. Um, that said, uh, you know, let's get a little bit distance from me. Um, I would say if anybody was in my situation going into like, I, I want to be equipped enough to be useful to the church. Um, but I don't think it's going to be a pastor and I'm not sure what that means. Um, should I go through seminary? My answer would be, well, sure. Yeah. Go through seminary. Like it's not, it's not a terribly long time you know, three to five years. Um, it's not horribly difficult. Um, it's definitely a lot of work. Uh, and some people, there's certain skills like language skills that might just knock you out. Um, in which case MAs are great for that. You can get a, not an MDiv, but an MA without having to do a lot of the language work. Um, but my big suggestion would be don't do an undergrad in religion. If if that's where you are, do an undergrad in computer science or, um, biology or, um, business, any other field, mainly because any seminary is going to do a lot of redundancy. You're going to learn a lot of the same things in your undergrad as you did in your grad work. Um, and then whenever you're in your grad work, you can be working not at Chick-fil-A, uh, and working not at Starbucks, which will make your time much more enjoyable. Most likely. Um, So I think it was, and I think it's, it's worth it to go through seminary because there are a lot of soft skills that you can learn. There's a lot of things that make you, um, you know, more useful to the church. Um, there's a lot of like just knowledge out there that's, 
uh, I wouldn't have come in contact if it wasn't for Southern. Um, and so it helped me really understand my own kind of theology and philosophy and pushes me to understand, like, uh, really evaluate and question philosophical ideas that are, are given to me. So I think that it's, yeah, I think it's worth it. Okay. We'll sure. see. We'll see how I answer that question once all the student loans are paid off in, in five years and whether I can, I still say that. Right. So, um, you mentioned, um, Caitlin Jenner and I'm not too much into news and so forth, but yeah. this is a fellow who transitioned into a woman, right? Yes. So, um, so what are your, so I met, I noticed that you mentioned you referred to her as her mm-hmm. and, um, so I've, you know, I'm in contact with um, trans people, you know, and family and so forth. And, you know, I've had to kind of wrestle through that myself, thinking, well, what, how do I regard them? You know, I've, um, I've thought, well, I'll use the, the name that they want me to use. But like when I, when it comes to the pronoun, it almost to me seems like, well, I'm kind of becoming a part of it a little bit then, but, um, what are your thoughts on it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, so obviously, um, transgenderism, um, as a, um, uh, as a social, uh, convention, as a social contract, right. Uh, transgender people exist, uh, and they have existed, uh, like I can, I can go and grab a transgender person and bring her here and, and put her in front and say, here they are. Um, not that I would want to grab a transgender person. I don't think that they would appreciate that. Um, but like objectively they exist and they have throughout history. Um, we see different cultures kind of engaging with transgenderism a little differently. Um, kind of most, most notably, um, a lot of different indigenous Americans had the, uh, two souls, um, uh, that certain children they believed had, um, two souls in them. They would have the, the soul that matches their body. Um, a male soul or a female soul. Um, but they might have a second soul, and that second soul could be opposed to their original soul, uh, a masculine soul with a female soul, so to speak. Um, in cultures that relate more to Christianity, I think that there's an argument for um, the eunuch actually being kind of a quasi-trans um trans designation in scripture that we have male female but then there's this class of eunuch that keeps popping up throughout scripture pretty overly condemned in the old testament like the eunuch wasn't allowed to go into the inner sanctum uh, but kind of venerated in the new testament right like the whole church of um, uh, ethiopia is built off of uh, the foundations of a eunuch Um, and so there just to say like there are kind of throughout history there's there tends to be kind of male and female class but there's lots of cultures that kind of insinuate a third class of gender um and we certainly see it in our modern realm um so the big question is uh, okay well what does it mean to christianity and how do how does christianity engage with it um uh, as a philosophical concept um not necessarily as trans people but let's start with the philosophical concept uh, well, I think with trans, uh, trans, uh, transgenderism as a philosophical concept, um, I think that there's a lot of congruency with what Christians think, right? Um, 
Now, not all trans people, um, but many trans people will acknowledge that there is something kind of ethereal about themselves. Um, internal, whether they'll use soul or not depends on, on them and their worldview, whether they believe a soul exists or not. Um, but they will usually, um, establish some type of internal force that says that there's something about me internally that knows that I am different than what I am physically presenting physically. Um, which the Christian would say, well, yeah, we totally agree that there is something internal about you um, that is not necessarily congruent with what's external about you, right? There's the soul that's internal um, that we say is, you know, um, everlasting, right? We have an eternal soul. Um, our bodies certainly aren't eternal, um, and they wither and die. And, uh, you know, as Christians, uh, you know, as I hit my 30s, uh, I realized just how much my body isn't necessarily in congruence with my soul, right? Um, uh, I wake up after, you know, working out and realize, like, my body is definitely not in congruence with my soul. Um, so there's some some correlation there. Um, that said, the, the big question is, well, what is the the level to which that correlation can happen, right? Uh, Christians will say that the soul and the body are very integrally intertwined so much so that the only way that you can separate them is through a pretty dramatic action. Um, death, for example, is the only thing that you can really separate the soul from the body. Um, and the, we would say that those two can, things can exist, uh, depart from one another, right? The, the body, the soul doesn't hang around the body once the body is dead or once we die, right? The, those two things are separated. Um, so they can exist uh, apart from one another. And I think that they exist kind of apart from one another earlier. And so it's like, um, but it is climactic, right? It's death. It's not, uh, it's not a small thing. Um, that congruency is deep and laden. Um, with transgenderism, though, it's, it's one of those like... Um, the, the soul and body are just not in congruence. Um, the, the big question is, okay, well, then how do you, how do you fix that incongruency? Um, with Christian teaching, the ultimate solution to that, well, is submission to Christ, right? That's how, you, that's how we get our body and soul in congruency with one another um, uh, in any situation, is that we look to Christ and, and follow his teachings. Um, now, Many trans people. Uh, there are some of the trans uh, community that are are, uh, uh, are Christians or who profess to be believers, uh, but most of them wouldn't hold that that's a solution. They would say, "Well, the solution is to treat the gender dysphoria." Uh, and in treating gender dysphoria, my position on that has changed um, as the science has changed. Ten years ago. Um, the the best way to reduce something like suicidality, uh, uh, the chances of them committing suicide, um, the best way to reduce that was to do uh, gender reaffirmation. Basically, if you were born as male, uh, encouraging them to live as male, that was kind of the most effective measure of reducing suicidality. Um, in the past 10 years, that's changed. Uh, numbers have flipped on that. Um, now it's you're much more likely to reduce the suicidality of an individual um, by affirming their, their new gender. Um, and so because 
and especially if I'm engaging with trans people who aren't Christians, um, if I'm engaging with trans people who aren't Christians, who aren't worried about the ethical worldview of Christianity, um, my primary concern is to keep them alive for as long as possible, um, as I is for every non-Christian, right? You, you can't, you can't give the gospel. You can't preach the gospel to somebody who's dead. So my first concern is keeping them alive for as long as I can, uh, to give me more opportunities to, to communicate the gospel to them. Um, so for something like, uh, gender affirming, I think it's, I think there's definitely an argument that Christians can make to affirm their gender, um, and a kind of a practical sense, right? We use pronouns, not necessarily, and I think this is language. We use pronouns, not necessarily to always indicate gender. Lots of times we use pronouns just for utility, right? Um, I'm going out on the ship. Oh, wow. She's a beauty, right? There's nothing feminine about the ship. It's just, I'm using that colloquially. Um, and there's certainly much more practical use of uh, you know, if you see a, a trans person who is what we call passing well, uh, meaning that they they look very much in the sex that they want to be in um, or the gender that they want to be in. Um, like, it's one of those things, it's hard to be like, oh, there is that trans person who was a man, who I'll use him, but he looks exactly like a she. Like, uh, it's not very practical in that sense. Um and it's definitely not good relationally. Like, um, it is one of those things of, uh, if you're going to engage with a trans person, um, relationally, it's, it's one of those things of it's, um, it will definitely end a conversation with a trans person if you're not willing to use, uh, use their pronouns, um, in the way that they like. And whether that's, um, whether that's he and she or whether they prefer, you know, they, them, um, which I think is uh, a lot of uh, non-binary. I think that actually tracks with language really well. Um, anytime that we don't know gender, we usually tend toward they, them. Um, and then also, um, you know, other kind of neo, neo pronouns. That's a, that's a fun one in the, in the world right now. Um, but I think that there's, there's certainly utility there um, and kind of, meeting somebody where they are. Um, and then if they ask you on that, like, okay, well, what is your view of gender? Being able to express that, um, but also being able to, um, yeah, meet them where they are. Great example would be like gay marriage, right? Like Christianity historically has had, um, kind of an opposition to gay marriage to say, I think that there's something about marriage that is meant for men and women. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. And, but if, you know, two gay couples are, or if a gay couple is, is meeting, I won't uh, refer to their marriage as like a pseudo marriage or something like that. Like, no, I functionally just call it a marriage and philosophically might have a difference of what that means. Um, but it's kind of that um, uh, for the sake of the relationship, for the sake of that communication and, and connection. Uh, I don't think that anything is lost there. Um, or anything is, is gained by really making that the, the front of the argument, if that makes sense. So um, kind of stepping back, yeah. you just different things you said, you know, it just kind of made me think of things. Like you talked about soul and body congruency and something kind of like a side issue that that brought up was um, like homosexuality because that seems like also like uh, incongruency. And... Um, you um, you said like that the there's 
through Jesus that could be addressed. But, um, you know, many homosexuals, you know, they would say, well, I'm a Christian now, but I still got these desires. So it, it's, um, and you mentioned also that like uh, gender dysphoria, like that might, you know, there's people who profess Christian Christianity and they could still, that doesn't like solve that problem. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, um, yeah, one, one concept I'll throw out there real fast, uh, just to kind of frame the discussion as well. Um, so, uh, Dr. Moeller, Dr. Um, uh, forgot his first name, Moeller, Albert. Uh, <laughs> Albert Moeller. Yeah, there we are. Um, <laughs> Dr. What's his name? Moeller. There we are. Uh, yeah. Uh, Albert Moeller at Southern, um, he has a great, what he calls the triage of Christianity. Um, just like if you go into a hospital, there's three different categories they'll put you into. Uh, about to die, probably fine. You don't really need to be here. Um, and that will address whenever you're seen in that line. The same thing for Christianity, right? There are those fundamental truths that cannot be denied, right? Um, I think like the historicity of Christ. If, if Christ didn't exist, uh, I don't think you can really be a Christian um, and believe that. Uh, raise, raised from the grave. I don't think that you can believe that uh, Jesus wasn't actually resurrected and be a Christian. Um, and those are the first tier one issues. Tier two issues would be things like, I don't think that we could be in the same church or have the same like deep level of community. Pedo baptism is a great example of that, right? Should infants be baptized? Um, I think there's argument in scripture both ways. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely not a paedo-baptist, so I don't go to a paedo-baptist church, um, but I won't deny the Christianity of somebody who's a paedo-baptist. And then third are those things that, like, I, I would say, like, it doesn't matter which way you believe on this because it's so open-handed. Uh, your lapsarian view. Right? I'm a, um, a teleological super lapsarian, uh, and I am probably one of four... <laughs> Four guys who are. It does not matter. Um, is there anybody else in our church who's pseudo lapsarian? I don't care. Uh, and it doesn't really matter. But it's that low level issue. Your political view, for example. Right? Two people can be totally different politically aligned and in the same church. Um, transgenderism and issues of transgenderism. And I think even to some level, um, homosexuality, tear between that first and second. Um, if it's denying the um, infallibility of scripture. I think we get into a kind of tier one issues where it's like, well, how much are you denying? Like there's a certain threshold, I think of Christian, of scripture that you deny, and then you can't really be a Christian because it's not so much because of your doctrine of scripture, but rather, um, your doctrine of Christ that comes through the scripture. Is that kind of what you're, you're saying? Yeah. That, yeah. 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 I think tier one issues really need to be because if somebody doesn't agree to a tier one issue, we're saying we don't think you're a Christian. Right. I think it has to be really limited then. Um, and really just be like on the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the gospel that Christ has come as a, not even as a substitutionary atonement, but as a means of salvation? Um, right. And if you, if you don't believe that, then I would say, well, I don't think that you're really a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, so most things I think fall into that. So I think that they're, um, so let's look at somebody like somebody who is, um, somebody who's gay. So part of the LGBT community who becomes a Christian. Um, I think that there are, there are definitely Christian persuasions that say, um, 
that have a difference on interpreting um, passages of the Old Testament that talk about homosexuality. Um, the the real difficulty is the few passages that we see in the New Testament because I think that they're really explicit um, about homosexuality, mainly um, uh, in Romans that uh, men have left natural relationships with women and sought out relationships with men and vice versa. I think that's really difficult to get around to say like, I think that this is just a explicit condemnation of uh, homosexuality. There are arguments for why it's not. I don't find them convincing. Um, I've heard some of them. I think most of those I would put into tier two. Um, You can be a Christian and I think you can do it with having a bad understanding of that passage, um, but still understand the gospel. Um, lower or closer to me it would be those who would say like I have um, kind of the attraction to somebody who's the same sex as me um, in which case I would say like okay like that's that I would say is um, attraction is kind of in the level of it's it's innate to us to some level like some levels you're, you'll find attractive what you find attractive um, some things are cultural, right? Like we find certain aspects of somebody else attractive based on the culture we're in. Um, we see this through history. Uh, I'll, I'll focus on, on women for a moment. Um, larger women were more attractive um, in early uh, primitive history, right? Um, than slender women were. Um, in the kind of the uh, French Revolution and kind of the, in that period, um, women who were very fair, uh, very light skin were seen as attractive, mainly because they were wealthy. In both situations, it was wealth is attractive, and, and here's how we can view that. Um, now it's the fit person, right? It's the person who, who looks like the you know quintessential Marvel character. What is that? Well, it's another indication that they've got enough money and time to sit around and work out and look, look good. Um, but those are all kind of external. And so, and some of those are cultivated, right? If I fixate on a certain thing that I find attractive, the more that I fixate on it, it becomes this loop, right? The more I fixate on it, the more that I like it, the more that I like it, the more I fixate on it. Um, I think same-sex attraction can be the same. There's going to be kind of an innate attraction. Some people will feel it. Some people won't. Um, For those people who do feel it, um, some of it's going to be culture, right? There's going to be certain cultures that they're little enveloped. Um, and then it can become kind of a loop. The more that you fixate on it, the more that it becomes your fixation. Um, Christianity, I think, would say uh, the best solution to that is to, to not indulge in that fixation, to kind of split yourself off from that fixation. Um, and that's that's where I land on that. So that struggle of having same-sex attraction after after conversion not only would I say that that's expected, but totally, um, totally normative. Like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I would expect because that's what you fixated on your, your, uh, experience and your sexual attraction for a long time. And just like, um, um, just like somebody who has any other type of, of sin that they're dealing with. So like, um, um, a great example would be something like uh, lying or something like that. Like their their natural propensity is going to be lie even after they become a Christian, and it's going to take some resculpting of the mind, basically. Um, but yeah, and it's it's a struggle, right? Like it's it's attraction. That's that's really deep into 
uh, into some who somebody is. Um, but it's not just attraction. It's also, um, you know, the LGBT community. Um, most of us are looking at the LGBT community out, outside of it, right? Most Christians. Um, and I, I keep really close tabs on the LGBT community. There's some ways in which I'm in a community with them, like um, through uh, a lot of political advocacy and, and things like that. Like I am in that group, but I'm also not a member of the LGBT communities. Um, so because of that, I see like they're not really as homogenous a group as what we would say, think that they are externally. Uh, just like Christians aren't really homogenous once you get inside and you see that there's lots of different divisions and different thought. Um, but one thing I do see as kind of a homogenous thing is that usually the LGBT community, it's an identity as well. It's kind of a person, a personhood found in it. Um, and so whenever you all of a sudden find your personhood in Christ, it's a whole transition and it, it's a hard process that definitely takes time. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely tough for anybody who goes through. Um, so time is the, the one thing that I would be like, is the biggest sympathy to them. Give them as much time as they, they need and, and help them get to the point of, um, you know, honoring Christ and, and their thoughts, words, deeds. Uh, and part of that, I think, as far as I understand scripture at this point, would be sexually as well. So I guess from what I'm understanding, you do think that um, Christianity is an answer not only to gender dysphoria, but homosexuality. Not that it's like an overnight thing, but it can be transformative over time. Yeah. And I think, uh, I will say this, I think scripture is a lot clearer on something like homosexuality than it is transgenderism. Um, so the difficulty is, is that there, to my understanding, there's only one passage of scripture that's really clear that it's talking about something that we would probably insinuate as transgenderism today. And that's uh, in the Old Testament when it basically says that a man should not adorn himself as a woman does, uh, nor should a woman uh, wear anything that pertaineth to a man, um, which is... Uh, uh, Alistair Begg has a, a wonderful story about that where uh, he heard that pertaineth, pertaineth to a man and it kind of flowed around his church and as a young man he was trying to figure out what all of these old guys are talking about and then they realized that all the old men were kind of looking over at a woman who came to church that day who was wearing pants she pertaineth to a man she's wearing that thing that pertaineth to a man which he was like which wasn't at all ironic that I looked around at all the old men and they're all wearing kilts or skirts. I was like, is this really what we're on about today? Um, but that is a section in Old Testament. Um, difficulty is, is that in the law, among other passages that we think don't really extend into the New Testament era, um, certain dietary mandates or clothing mandates, right? Um, like um, hybrid cloth. Um that depends on on how you interpret Old Testament law impacting New Testament. Um, mm. I think uh, so. That that's the only passage that I think is clear. Lots of scriptures that say you know male and female God created them. Like yeah, it's Adam and Eve. They they were male and female. Is that descriptive of who Adam and Eve were, or is that encompassing all that gender is? Uh, that's a difficult argument. Um, so transgenderism, I think there's, I think that there's a Christian argument to say that transgenderism, 
even doing a full transition for a person is simply correcting a physical defect in the body, like fixing a cleft palate or um, doing like a open heart surgery on a, on a child. I think there's that argument there. I think there's the other argument to say that God creates us internally and externally congruently. And we just need to um, kind of um, fall under that subservience of Christ um, and have that as a supremacy um, choice. Uh, I think both of those arguments are there in scripture. Um, All that to say, I think that homosexuality is a lot more clear, whereas transgenderism is is a lot harder. Um, Not mainly because scripture was written 2000 years ago uh, or more. Um, And while I said before, I think um, eunuchs kind of occupy something that we could see as kind of a transgender um, category or a third category of sex uh, at the very least. Um, eunuchs are not the same as transgender people today. So there, there's a lot of like, this is extrapolating from principles, which means it has to be a more open hand and it's hard. Um, whereas homosexuality, I think is a lot clearer in the text. Um, but yeah, definitely, uh, definitely hard, uh, especially in the modern context. Yeah, you mentioned like the Old Testament law. So when I think of the Old Testament law, I tend to think, well, I'm not Jewish and I'm not talking to a Jewish person. You know, it just has no uh, bearing, mm-hmm. especially with the consul at Jerusalem where this matter was dealt with. But the only the connection I do kind of see sometimes is that Jesus, he taught the Old Testament law, like the Sermon on the Mount. And then at the end of Matthew, it says, you know, make disciples, teaching them everything I commanded you. So then that kind of provides a connection, it seems like. There's something about, even though I'm not Jewish, it's a law God gave to the Jews, and I am a Christian, so there's some kind of connection there with following the commands of Jesus, you know. But anyway, it's hard to for me to also kind of look at, like, Old Testament proof text and say that's why you should do this or not do that, you yeah. know. And that becomes the real issue, right? Like, how do we interpret the Old Testament law? Um, some people will say, like, there's three different categories. There's that which was cultural, and we're no longer under that. There's that which was moral, and that continues forward. And then that which was um, political, that which was just for the nation of Israel, um, which is really great designation uh, and makes it clear which one you should go with if Scripture was that clear, and, and Scripture isn't. Right. right. Uh, you know, uh, the idea of not eating pork was as much moral as it was cultural, as it was um, political. Um, so, like, how do we divide those? Um, I think the, I think that anything that we see in the New Testament is clear, right? Uh, that if it's pointing back to an Old Testament, it reestablishes that and continues and pulls that through. Um, anything that's rejected in the New Testament, I think that that helps to make things clear. Things like dietary laws, right? Mm-hmm. Peter's told to kill any animals that he shouldn't have. I think that's a clear rejection of, of kind of some of the old Testament law outside of that, man, uh, best of luck to my old Testament friends. Uh, those guys who are scholars in that, that area. Uh, it's really difficult. Um, well, I, yep. just your thoughts about just the practicality of, you know, pronouns and, and the relationally, that's probably like the best argument I've 
heard, you know, as far as just considering that. Uh, you mentioned like sometimes using they or them, mm-hmm. which is non-gender, but does that always work? Because that's like a plural type of thing. And you're, you know, when you're talking about a singular person. Yeah. Um, so there is, uh, there's definitely a sense of like, um, it is, uh, linguistically like unexpected sometimes, right. Uh, to use they or them. Um, but we do use they or them to refer to singulars, um, whenever the gender of them isn't distinct. Um, we actually do this in the Bible, uh, a, a particular translation of the Bible. Um, so in, um, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the translation, uh, King James version, um, in the King James version, uh, I wish I could remember the passage, uh, but essentially it talks about stoning, um, two people. And it, uh, says something along the lines of, uh, if this man is caught in infidelity and kind of goes on, or if this woman is caught in infidelity, um, they shall be stoned. Right. So the question isn't both of them. It's not referring to both of them. It's referring to one or the other. It's just, you don't know what gender is being pulled through. Right. So the person doing King, uh, transition, uh, translating in King James chose to use the they because it wasn't clear which one you're, you're doing. Um, in law, we use this all the time, um, where it will be, um, this individual will be responsible and they shall, uh, resume all responsibilities therein. Um, it's one of those where they can be used to describe, um, basically a person who you're not sure what their gender is, um, textually usually, because there's nothing in a text that would insinuate that, <clears throat> which is a uniquely kind of English, really romantic languages. You know, some languages don't have that same engendering of, of pronouns in the same way. Um, Japanese, for example, <clears throat> um, Japanese has a lot more honorifics, um, in their pronouns than necessarily gendered pronouns. Um, so your familiarity depends uh, your familiarity with somebody dictates what pronoun you use, not their gender. Hmm. Um, it's a reason why I think they is really great for people who are non-binary. Um, so, um, uh, trans, trans people and generally, uh, include non-binary people as well, uh, in the sense of, uh, trans, trans doesn't necessarily mean transitioning. That's usually what we associate it with. Um, but a lot of people view transgenderism uh, as uh, kind of above genderism or um, like transhumanism to extend beyond. Um, so to, to be a trans man would be to extend beyond what it is to be considered uh, a man um, and to incorporate something that, that wasn't historically seen, transhuman, to extend beyond what a human can be. Um, and so I think non-binary people fit in that category as well. Um, and with non-binary person, it's kind of hard to tell what gender they are, whether they're male or female, or rather it's, it's hard to tell what sex they are, mm-hmm. um, whether that's male or female. Um, so in that case, it's best to use they, especially if they are looking for that because it, it functionally works in language. Um, but I think the big thing is like, this is, it can be like kind of a philosophical debate and a philosophical conversation, but once you're engaging directly with a trans person, like then it becomes relational and relation dictates another kind of ground of rules, which is, um, you know, empathy, caring, um, connection, right. And, and those things 
are instantly lost if if you're not willing to uh, to meet with them and engage them where they are, um, which I think is where scripture would engage with them too. Like, um, you know, the the big question is would would Jesus use uh, which I think is the right question you ask, would Jesus use uh, associated pronouns or, or requested pronouns? I think he would probably use requested pronouns. Like, I, I that's kind of my my thought based on how he engaged with everyone else, right? Um, and so, um, but yeah, I think it's once, you, once you're in that conversation, once you're relational, um, you've got to decide whether it's, what, what's more important making that philosophical stance, um, and, and kind of holding to that or, or creating a connection with that person. I think generally the connection is, is worth more than, uh, making the philosophical grandstand, so to speak. Yeah. I guess it's a matter of just thinking it through, thinking what love is and so forth. Um, yeah. because, um, being authentic and true is loving as well. So there's different things to wrestle with in that, you know. Yeah. It's definitely, and it, it will come down, I think, a lot to the consciousness, uh, mm-hmm. to the conscience of the Christian, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the New Testament is is clear that uh, you can do certain things that uh, you're totally free to do, but if it, if it pricks your conscience and your conscience is against it, mm-hmm. um, then it's wrong for you to do it, right? Um, right eating certain type of meat. I think that's fair to say, you know, um, uh, a great discussion that was at Southern was, you know, can I go to a gay wedding? Is it right for a Christian to go to a, to a gay wedding? Um, and lots of debate back and forth. And what does that mean to go to a wedding? Are you supporting it? Or are you not? Uh, it's not like anybody's going to get married if you don't go to their wedding. Like, uh, I can tell you, uh, the only one who would have stopped the wedding from happening, my wedding from happening would have been if my wife didn't show up beyond that, like me and her there and that's it. We're still getting married. Um, I will find somebody to officiate. Um, but nevertheless, like, um, and my conversation was always, well, let's start with, do you feel comfortable enough being around gay people to be happy, loving and supportive to who they are in that moment? Like if, if you see in two, uh, two men kiss or two women kiss is you kind of have that, like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to be around that. Like, then don't go to the wedding. Like by all means, don't be there. Um, but it is going to be one of those things like, yeah, but that's going to, that's going to affect the relationship. Um, and so, yeah, understanding the way that, uh, but if it's against your conscience, don't do something that's against your conscience first and foremost, right? Like your, your consciousness is, and there, there's ways to, to gracefully mend that relationship or, or kind of step around and just say like, you know, you, I love you, I support you, but my consciousness doesn't just doesn't allow me to engage in this one activity, um, you know, and try to approach them with humility in that. And I think in a lot of cases, like, okay, people are understanding, generally willing to work with one another. Um, but yeah, don't, don't to go to a gay wedding if you don't think that you should, right? Like in the same way, if, yeah, don't uh, don't use paprika if you think that using paprika is a sin. I don't think it is. I certainly hope it's not. Uh, but if you feel like it is, then, then by all means, don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That um, 
brings up like a whole different topic oh, yeah. um, <laughs> that I, I'd like to talk about, just the matter of the conscience. But yeah. before we go there, you, met, you mentioned being united with homosexuals and political adv- mm-hmm. advocacy. Like what kind of thing are you advocating for and so forth? Yeah, so um, politically, uh, my, my distinct, nuanced, uh, perfect definition uh, would be that I am a, uh, a Christian anarchist. Uh, kind of in the Tolstoy uh, method, um, uh, a lot of influence. Um, uh, what method? Uh, uh, Tolstoyevsky. Uh, okay, all right. Um, the author. Huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then also, um, uh, man, I'm trying to remember, grab his name off the top of my head, but I can't. It'll, it'll probably come to me at an inopportune moment. Um, and somebody at home is probably screaming it, uh, into their, into their, uh, listening device. Sorry, whoever you are, um, causing pain to you right now. Anyway, um, basically the idea of, uh, hierarchical systems that aren't, um, self, um, self-supported, uh, should be abolished. So, um, that's, that's very much my, my focus in, I think that's what we see in scripture with the church. I think that the church is a great model for how community can be built, right? Um, communities are, Christian community is creedal. It's by proclamation. You are a Christian if you say you're a Christian, but it's also expectation. There are certain things that you're expected to do in order to be a Christian. Um, I think that that's a great model for any community, including political communities, including, um, to some sense, um, large-scale cultures, countries. Um, all that said, that's very far. It's a very far left position to hold. Um, and so, like things like um, economic redistribution of wealth, or uh, the the means of production being owned by the ones who are producing, the workers, are all things that are part of that, and they're all kind of meter levels of left to that. So the less accurate general whenever somebody asks like okay what do you vote for like because nobody's nobody's running as a christian anarchist um so what do you vote for um i would say that my general political position is uh kind of progressive left um as a a general idea of here are the economic things that i think that we should should be advocating for that i think that produce the most good um and most of those tend to be toward the left side uh, and then here are the political things or the cultural things, right? Um, like I said before, I think a fundamental idea of Christianity is that we need to keep people who aren't Christians alive um, and advocate that to do those things that uh, reduce suicidality. Um, a lot of transgender rights and things like that reduce trans, uh, suicidality. So uh, supportive of those things, especially where they... Uh, um, where they don't conflict with any kind of religious um, uh, religious expectation or compulsion, um, and other things like that. So, in, in that way, there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of members of the LGBT community that I work with or, or vote with or advocate with, um, and so it's one of those things where I've, they'll, they'll ask me like, "Are you an ally?" Like, "Well, I'm not an ally." Uh, because there are, you know, um, uh, religious um, differentiations that I have with the LGBT community. Um, but also, like, I think 
it comes down to how does Christ interact with culture? Um, and there's some really great resources on that, but I think generally speaking, um, once it comes to that culture, then I'm, I'm much more advocating for like, how can I help this person live the most eudaimonious or happy life? Um, which I think that highest eudaimonia is going to be found in Christ. So that's where I'm going to push them. Uh, but until that point, especially if I'm never going to be able to interact with them directly, I'm going to engage with those things that give them the best chance at that, right? Um, best economic situation, best uh, healthcare situation, best, uh, you know, whatever I can. So just, you know, understanding what anarchy mm-hmm. is, um, you mentioned, you know, believing that the authority uh, structures that are not self-supported ought to be abolished. What do you mean by self-supported? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, generally uh, anarchists will say something like um, there are certain uh, certain authority structures that aren't um, um, yeah aren't self supported. Basically, like they are manufactured or they're synthetic. They they don't exist out of uh, out of nature or out of necessity. Um, there are certain things that that are authority structures that do. So it's it's best to kind of understand them apart from one another. Um, I think expertise is a great example, right? Uh, a lot of uh, one of the the clear uh, clear statements you'll see from anarchists is something like, um, "Whenever whenever it comes to matters of boot making, trust the boot maker," right? Uh, whenever it comes to so whenever it comes to matters of like uh, etymology or uh, uh, vir- uh, viruses, right? Like we trust the CDC on that. We trust, uh, we trust scientists. We trust people who have spent their life researching and, and becoming experts because knowledge is a justified expertise. The, the more that you know about something, the more that it, um, authenticates that you should be making decisions in that area. Um, but there are certainly, um, authorities that are kind of synthetic. Um, so one of the big ones would be like, um, uh, ownership, right? Like, um, um, if you, uh, if you own a company, um, there's, you're definitely, uh, or rather like if you're the one who, yeah, if you're the one who owns a company, uh, you can have absolutely no expertise in that company whatsoever. You can know nothing about the company. You could just have a couple hundred million dollars sitting around and you could pay for somebody else to be the CEO of that company, to run that company, have nothing to do with that company. Um, no, and no addition to that company other than just like giving that beginning uh, capital start off. Um, and yet you can walk away with 90% of the profits of that company. Right. Uh, and so it's one of those things of like, there's no, there's nothing natural even to that organization that says that that person should exist. Um, in fact, there's lots of ways outside of that original startup capital, uh, and if that capital was produced by another means, let's say it was produced by the workers gathering their funds together and starting the company that way, like uh, through collective co-ops and things like that, um, that company could exist in exactly the same way. Like that that one person, or rather if like I was just to remove that person, the company would exist in pretty much the same way. Um, in fact, the company would probably be better because they'd be left with 90% of their profits, um, something like that. Um, those are things that we would say are synthetic hierarchies that exist. Um, well, he, um, he is providing, like you mentioned mm-hmm. this providing capital. So it's like, 
um, he's providing something he's evidently good at, um, or maybe not, maybe his parents or grandparents were good at it and he's just a beneficiary of that, you know, but, um, if, um, if, you know, the, um, the workers were able to organize and, and provide the capital themselves, then if they were better than him at doing that, then they, you know, they could do that too. So he's providing, I guess, something, it's just a little bit of a pushback, but just, to- oh no, you're, I think you're definitely right in this situation. He definitely is. And I think in our, our current economic state, he really is. Um, and I think part of the issue there is that, um, American economy, for example, is so, uh, so built on that, uh, business model that it's, it's hard to imagine, um, other business models. Uh, so a great example would be something like, uh, you know, in America, we need that capital. That guy has to exist without that guy. The company doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> so of course the guy should, then it logical flows. The guy should not only get benefits of that company, but the majority of the benefits without him, the whole company wouldn't exist. Um, other models like what we see in Italy, for example, in Italy, um, they found, uh, about 10 years ago that the amount that they paid on, actually, I think it was less. It was just after, just as they started their economic, uh, recovery. Um, they found that they were paying as much for unemployment, um, for 10 people, as they were just to start up businesses and loans. And so what they decided was we're going to start a program in our government that basically says if 10 unemployed people come together and they say, we want to start a worker co-op, um, they finance a worker co-op and give that kind of like government grants and things to help them start their co-op, to give that um, uh, starting capital um, in order to, uh, to get off the ground. And then those workers own that. Uh, and what they found is one that they end up spending less money because it's, it's all the same money they were already paying in unemployment. Just now they've created a business. Hmm. Um, so it benefited the government because then those 10 people were off of unemployment all of a sudden. Um, and it's economic growth. It's a new company it's producing, uh, and the profits are going directly to the workers who are producing everything. Um, and that's been pretty successful. Worker co-ops are about as successful as capitalists, or rather, uh, are a little bit more successful. They are a lot more stable, um, and they are a lot more like economic and ecologically friendly um, than other companies are what we consider the traditional model in America. Uh, but it is one of those things where that model was supported, and I think that's more of a kind of an egalitarian or like uh, equal among the workers view. Um, the difficulty is that in America, we don't we don't do that. We don't have a lot of those worker co-ops. Uh, most banks won't finance worker co-ops because they view it as a um, uh, as a disruptive business business model. Um, and so it is one of those things. And that's why I would say, like, I think progressivism has that um, good edge to it because it is like a progression, right? Um, ultimately, I would love for the for the workers to own the means of production in a way that it. Uh, uh, dismantles a proletariat class so that there are no kind of rulers and workers who uh, kind of dictate over the worker and can decide if they're going to be fired and out on the street starving to death or be employed for the next 30 years. Like I would much rather that be a decision of the workers. Uh, I would love a classless, moneyless, stateless society. Uh, You know, I I think that's what heaven is like in the end. Uh, but we're not in the new kingdom. Uh, we're not in the new age. 
so until then it's, it's baby steps. It's progressive. Like it's right now it's encouraging co-ops. It's encouraging, uh, it's encouraging unions. It's encouraging, um, uh, uh, encouraging more, uh, rights of the workers, rights of the individual rights of the citizen. Um, that's kind of where I land politically on those things, but it's, hmm. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely baby steps. We're not, we're not jumping into the revolution anytime soon right now. It's let's see what we can do with worker co-ops and get that model more supported and work out the kinks and, uh, get more workers to own more of, of what they produce. Well, that's interesting. And the example you gave from Italy is interesting. And I like the idea of like, um, something creative like that, that gives people ownership. I guess um, one of the concerns I have about in our country, like um, kind of uh, left-leaning politics is um, just how the government has grown through it. And and in efforts to help um, people maybe have not helped them so much um, through... um, you know, to welfare and taking away incentive and stuff like that, perhaps. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely the execution of, of certain things um, can be really difficult. Um, and it's the difficulty of like, um, you know, if we take if we take where our government is now versus where it was um, 75 years ago um, or, or more. Um, let's, let's focus on, on like after the new deal. Um, and there's lots of economic, uh, economists and, and historians who are, are better versed in this, um, than I am. But, uh, basically pre Reagan, if we take that period from the new, uh, from the new deal to, uh, to Reagan, you know, the government was much bigger. Uh, it was very much cut under Reagan and then every kind of, um, neoliberal, um, president after that has has cut down as well clinton bush um uh, obama um and then i would probably put trump as a a neoconservative so like in what way was it bigger before like physically more people more people yeah um wow which i mean part of that is every everything was more people Uh, we didn't have as much automation i see um but it was bigger in the sense of um uh, other other means too, as far as like the welfare percentage, uh, people not just the the percentage of population who received welfare believe, uh, but the percentage of welfare that would take care of their daily needs, things like that, w- was all higher, hmm. um, and that all reduced under Reagan, um, and then has um, you know uh, Bush Senior reduced it as well, Clinton reduced, and it, it's always been kind of a reduction of of welfare and things like that. Um, and I think with that, what we see is whenever we, whenever we've reduced welfare and whenever we've kind of encapsulated it, uh, behind certain thresholds, like you need to be able to do these things. Um, then it actually ends up being a way that it can be more targeted toward different people and exclude certain people and include certain people. we start to create more and more disparities. Um, and we start to create more and more problems in that. Um, and we start to create more and more um, hierarchy and more and more uh, bureaucrats, bureaucratic institutions, right? Um, whereas, like, the free, like, we're going to do this for anybody who is under this wage. Like, if you're under 20000 a year, we're going to give you this amount. 
um, that's a lot less bureau bureaucracy than like if you're under 20,000 and you are Hispanic and you are under the age of 25, then you get X amount. If you're this and you're this and you're this, because then as you're checking, you're going through all that. Um, but it does. Yeah. The, the issue of welfare, um, issue of how much does the government intercede and help? Um, and then how much does the government, uh, where and when does the government get out of the way? Right. Cause that's a big part of, uh, of leftism is the idea that like, uh, eventually the government isn't supposed to be, uh, the caretaker. Um, a lot of leftists have this wrong on their own, but it's, uh, eventually the government is supposed to step aside to the community and the community is supposed to be the caretaker much more than any type of like large bureaucratic institution. And eventually it's not just the community. It's your neighbor. Your neighbor is the one who takes care of you. Um, which is what I think is much more, much more akin to the Christian model of the church, right? Uh, whenever we have problems economic in the church, right? I don't go to the SBC to ask for help. Uh, you know, I go to my local church or I go to my brother or sister in Christ in that local church who I know would be able to help me. Uh, and consequently, if I'm in a situation where I have brother or sister in Christ and I know that I can help them in the church, like that's going to be more empowering to me. And I'm going to, I'm going to be happier to serve in that way than any other model and have my, my eudaimonia, my happiness will increase the most in that model. Um, but that is, that is the goal. And I think that progressing toward that, it does take the kind of like, okay, we create this at a large society that we care for one another. Then we have that pushed down to the community that we care for one another. And eventually it does go down to that individual. Um, but it's a long road um, to that point. Yeah. Well, this is really interesting. Um, I think we'll need to wrap up yeah. pretty soon. And then if you're willing, maybe at some point in the future, it'd be great to pick it back up. But um, um, it's interesting talking to you because I can relate to you in some ways, and then in some ways you're thinking about things a lot differently than me. So that yeah. just makes it all really. I'm a I'm a very odd person. Yeah. I'm always I'm always uh, yeah uh, always riding in the same boat for a long time until somebody's like, "What do you think about this?" Mm-hmm. I think something very odd. I have a weird decision on this. <laughs> so something I, I would like to ask you about uh, before wrapping up is. Um, like just a matter of like in the Christian faith, a lot of you know some things we experience right now, but a big part of the Christian faith is just future hope, you know the the age to come and so forth, and um, and that can um, you know so that's something like well we're just going on, we've been told you know and mm-hmm. and what's the source of your confidence I guess. Yeah, that's my question. Um, is there anything in particular? Is it like reason? Is it more like, I think Alvin Plantinka speaks about like some kind of a sense. I don't know. Um, but what for you, um, what is it that, you know, gives you confidence in the Christian faith and future hope? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful question. Yeah, and I think you're correct on Alvin Plantinka that he, he talks and puts a lot of um, emphasis on what he calls, Calvin called, uh, census divinitus, the the sense of the divine in the self, uh, and kind of that innate belief or knowledge that there's a divine entity out there. Um, so the the kind of the phrase that I use on it is 
uh, Christian existentialism. Um, existentialism is basically the idea that something doesn't have a value in and of itself, but rather values ascribed to it. Great example is the sunset, right? Um, is the sunset beautiful? Well, the sunset exists first, like the sunset existed before I go and see it, or rather the concept of sunsets existed before I existed, before humanity existed. Um, but whenever we see it, we kind of ascribe to it a beauty, uh, we ascribe to it. And then once we ascribe that beauty to it, we then kind of that feedback loop starts, then it becomes beautiful to us. And every time we see it, it becomes beautiful kind of in its nature. Um, I have a similar view to how the Christian becomes a Christian, right? That, um, the, the statements of Christ, the statements of what we see in scripture, um, for a long time have no value to us whatsoever. And then there's that moment, which I think is inspired by the Holy spirit, but that moment of consciousness where all of a sudden we decide I'm going to believe the things in scripture. And whenever that moment comes and you say, okay, I'm going to believe the things in scripture. All of a sudden you believe the, what scripture says about itself and what it says about its own efficacy and its own authority. Um, and once you start believing that, then you start to believe the promises that we see in scripture uh, and once you start to see the promises that we see in scripture, then you start to, um, you start to believe in yourself in scripture. Um, so who you are in scripture, especially who you are at the end of scripture, at the end of the promises is very different than who you are right now. Um, and there is a lot of hope and faith that you will be able to become that person. Um, in many ways, uh, to relate it back to probably the nerdiest thing I would be able to would be like, uh, Captain America, Steve Rogers before the serum, uh, this idea of like, if he knew what he was going to be like after the serum, this kind of full bodied, amazing expansion of what it is to be a human. Um, that's what he had to look forward to. I think Christians have the same thing where we get to see ourselves in Christ and that promise of what he, what we are to become at the end. Um, is something to really hold on to because that's going to be, you know, that's a promise of who we become. And even more so, that's a promise of who we become in relation to Christ. And that's that's what really hooks us in. That's the gospel. Like the gospel is the nature of Christ himself, that we get to spend time in servitude with him, to him. Um, so, like when we, yeah. so like when we see a sunset, it's like we just know it, we see it's beauty, we recognize that we see it's beauty. Mm-hmm. And then when we see like ourselves in the gospel story, it's um, like it just resonates as true, and we're just recognizing it. Is that kind of what you're saying? I think so. It's one of the once once we've recognized it, like once we've kind of taken that, um, as Kierkegaard would say, once you've taken that leap of faith, once you're kind of into the Christian model, um, because before before I become a Christian, before I became a Christian, you could come to me and say here's what your life would be like in Christianity um, or here's what you would be like in Christ. And my response would be like, I don't care uh, because I'm not a Christian. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't have any type of, there's no appetite in the soul for that. Like it would be like, uh, um, yeah, it would be like offering food to somebody who's not hungry. Like there's no, there's no desire for that. Um, but that moment that it switches, that moment that you look into scripture and you've decided, you kind of take that leap of faith, you decide this is what I'm going to believe, uh, which again, I think is that happens through the Holy spirit. You know, I'm a reformed guy on that. Um, I think that the Holy spirit kind of pushes that, creates that affection. 
And then once you have that affection, that desire, like that becomes all consuming thing. Um, and so it can be kind of a supported by rationality. Um, there's definitely rational parts of scripture. I, uh, and I think philosophy is a great tool um, to use with scripture. I think philosophy is even a great tool to use apart from scripture where scripture isn't clear on something uh, to understand the nature of God. Um, so it's almost like your source of confidence is just the confidence you have. Almost. Exactly. Yeah. It becomes, and which is circular and sounds logically wrong, but I don't care that it's logically wrong. Even, even me as a philosopher is like, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's fine if it's not great, uh, if it's not great analytical logic, uh, because it is, that's the way it is. Like it just, it becomes a self-supportive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that it's blind or, or not that it's dumb. You know, I was listening to a debate where a person asked like, what if I was able to definitively prove that Christianity exists? What would that take? I was like, Oh, well, it's easy. All you have to do is produce the body of Christ. Like if we, if we knew that the physical body of Christ existed or it was dead and in, in a grave, then you didn't resurrect. And so there is no Christianity. So like, yeah, stop believing in Christianity. Um, there's no reason to that said, like, because we don't have that because we have the promises of Christ. And because I believe that he did resurrect now it's this whole encompassing thing. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it becomes its own perpetual motion device. And I think that's, that's wonderful. I think that's kind of in the design, um, that God put in us. Cause I don't think that, I don't think that Christianity could be sustained without that perpetual cyclical re-encouragement feedback loop that God has given us. Um, yeah, which is nice. I'm I'm certainly thankful for it. Well, thanks, Alex. I really appreciate the conversation. Really yeah, good. absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was really great to uh, sit down and get to know you. Mm-hmm.